นโมทัสสะกวาตัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมบุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะกวาตัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมบุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะกวาตัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมบุทธัสสะพุทธังธรรมังสังฆังนามัสสะ
victory and defeat is a very big deal. And because, because we don't have a wise perspective, because we don't know that there is the possibility of beyond victory and defeat, because we're intoxicated by victory, by winning, because we get lost in winning, we get lost in losing. And that's what the Buddha called the world. And it's a sad and sorry state. And it doesn't have to be that way. The Buddha identified what he called the world, which is this realm of winning and losing, happiness and suffering and, and praise and blame. But then there also is the actuality which sees through or sees beyond the world. So from the perspective of actuality or from the perspective of Dhamma, as the Buddha called it, this apparent reality is normal, winning and losing, but... When we get lost in it, we become abnormal. We're not fully what we can be, and we suffer terribly. So the training the, uh, that we are fortunate to have stumbled over is aimed at the cultivation of this wisdom, this wise way of seeing, this wisdom which means that we will experience winning and losing, but we won't get lost in it. You can win and still feel happy, that's fine. You can lose and still be okay. And that's, that's not generally the way of the world. So our, our training in formal practice and in daily life practice is uh, one aspect of it is to remember this. So winning and losing are objects of contemplation. They're not, it's not wonderful when we win and it's not terrible when we lose. It's just so. This is the world. It happens like this. And if we're committed to the cultivation of wisdom, then we'll get interested in this and we'll study it. Over this last week, uh, some of you here and uh, a good bunch of others have been on formal retreat for a week here. Ajahn Abhinando has very enthusiastically and generously uh, offering guidance and encouragement and support. And I, uh, I must say I, I found it uh, inspiring to talk with several of the retreatants uh, after the retreat, uh, hearing a report on how it's gone. And, and what inspired me was not that everybody was having a good time, because some people didn't have a good time. Some people had quite a hard time. But that they knew what to do with the difficulty. Mm. What's rather uninteresting is where people say, oh, I had a great retreat, I was just so blissed out the whole week. <laughs> That's not going to do you any good. That's, uh, yeah, you can go have a holiday somewhere else. Ajahn Abhinanda wasn't here just to entertain you. This retreat was offering guidance so that we can let go of the superficial levels of security, of deluded security, and go deep enough to be able to recognize those habits of clinging, those lies that we tell ourselves on a regular basis, and meet them with interest until we discover letting go at that level. 
Now, if we don't have a wise perspective, then we don't even suspect that that's what constitutes a good retreat. We think just getting happy is a good retreat. Happiness is okay. It helps us relax. It's got its place. I'm all for a good dose of happiness. It keeps us healthy. But the function of happiness is so we can relax and get strong and get deeper and investigate and see and do the work we really need to do, which is investigate and see into and through and beyond these habits of clinging. Uh, training to learn the difference between apparent reality and actuality. To appreciate that, for instance, having information about something can be very gratifying. Like in the beginning when we come across Buddhist teaching, you read all about it and and that gives us a good feeling on a certain level, but it doesn't free us. So as the Buddha said on many occasions, the, the level of pariyati or study or learning about Dhamma, that's, that's absolutely got its place. It's the first step, but then we need to take it deeper and apply these teachings until we start to learn for ourselves. And learning, or through experience, the knowledge that comes from experience is of a totally different order to the knowledge that comes from learning about things. We can read books, we can listen to talks, we can study and learn about so much, but we need to remember that this is not the goal, this is not going to actually free us. It's a totally different reality, a totally different realm. I can remember my, my chemistry class in school many, many years ago, learning about, in the chemistry class, learning about the sugar molecule. Do you remember what a sugar molecule looks like? C6H12O6, and you've got these little plastic things kind of on top of the desk there, and this is a sugar molecule. This is what the teacher said. This is a sugar molecule. And you look at it and say, oh, that's interesting. But you wouldn't eat it, would you? This is an approximation. Yeah, this is this is a, this is an approximation of sugar. The difference between that and and putting a a spoon of honey straight out of the jar in your mouth. I mean, a totally different order. Now, of course, I know honey is not glucose, so different chemistry, but you get the point. Yeah. Learning about something and learning it yeah, are totally different. Now, if we don't understand that learning about is the realm of apparent reality. We can just study, 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 and we can get all puffed up, as even in the time of the ancient Greeks, Socrates was warning about the dangers of the written word. It was most disparaging of, I think it was the Egyptians, and and the dangers of getting puffed up with the perception that we are intelligent, we know something, because we know about something. And maybe in this day and age, perhaps more so than ever before, you can just Google anything and, and know about it instantly or very quickly, depending on on how fast your internet connection is. And, you, and because we know about things, we think we know something. Well, it's very important that uh, we don't fall for the delusion of apparent reality. Mm. It's okay, it is what it is, but it's not actuality. Mm-hmm. So learning to know the difference can be very important Listen, 
So with winning and losing, when we win, it, it feels great. But we've got to feel beyond that. You know, remember, when you win, there's somebody loses. And they're not having a great time. So we don't get lost in winning, hopefully. Or when we lose, it doesn't feel good. You lose a loved one or you start to lose your memory. That's a, you know, that's a tricky one. Yeah. Don't feel very good about that. But if we prepare ourselves with the understanding, with the actuality, the actual understanding, that winning and losing is the way of things. Arising and passing, beginning and ending. This is the nature of the world. And as we say in the chanting, the Buddha, loka we do, the knower of the world, knowing beyond the way the world appears to be. Yeah. Winning and losing is like that. Gain and blame, praise and blame is like that. It's just the way the world is. Yeah. So if we don't have this perspective, if we don't have this wise perspective, we can easily get fooled by the way things appear to be. Yeah. On all levels. And and the task that we are engaged with here is a, uh, a traditional Asian monastic community translating from the context of northeast rural Thailand into this society here. It's an experiment. And it's a tricky experiment. And we don't know that it's going to work. We need to be very careful as we uh, invest, engage in this experiment. And we listen, but we're careful how we listen to what people have to say. We listen to ourselves, we listen to other people. If we just blindly listened to what other people would tell us, we would have lost this tradition a long time ago. I was thinking earlier today about how when we were living in Chittis in the early days, somebody was trying to convince us that we should change our robes to saffron tracksuits because saffron tracksuits would be more convenient. I, I kind of like that idea, actually. And these things aren't very convenient. You know, we could have done that. We could have changed into <laughs> saffron tracksuits. Yeah. Or also, of course, I'm sure you can imagine how a lot of people have tried to persuade us to use money. It's not very convenient that we don't use money. Yeah, the Buddha was very clear. One of, the, one of the rules that he laid down, we're not supposed to be having rights over money. And... But we could come up with an apparently good idea because you know, it's convenient. You know, convenient comfort can be very convincing if we're not wise. You know? Like having a really soft bed can appear a good idea, but it can ruin your back. You know, so a wiser perspective is actually you know, a somewhat harder bed is a good idea. So I'm really pleased that Ajahn Sumedho had the wise perspective to say, no, we don't change our robes and certainly we don't use money. And, and what we did do for the first few years was we just practiced the way we had in Thailand. We just did what we did in Thailand and, and although it was difficult, we wanted to make sure that when we did drop something, when we did let go of something, when we did adjust, it wasn't just a reaction to discomfort but it was based on wise consideration. Mm -hmm. When we Back in those days when we were renovating the uh, big semi-derelict mock Tudor mansion that we had received in West Sussex, there's a story I've often told before about how we wanted to divide 
this there's a uh, two rooms, big rooms, and we wanted to divide them into three smaller rooms, and we were cautious about it, and and we well, you know, if you knock that wall down, maybe it's a supporting wall, and and uh, you've got to be careful. You knock that wall down, the roof's going to fall in. And so what we did was we took a layer right across the bottom, from pillar to pillar. We knocked it out. We took the mortar off and knocked everything. You could see right through to the other side. Pillar to pillar. Okay. Well, there's nothing there. doesn't look like a supporting wall. Well, better be careful. So we did the same at the top. Pillar to pillar, wall to wall. A strip knocked it right out. And you could see it totally open. See right through the next room. So there was a gap. A gap. So I don't know whether that's an Amro, I don't know who was in charge of the project. Anyway, we all went off and left the Anagarikas to knock the wall down. And uh, so they did knock the wall down, but when Ajahn Amaro and Ajahn Sachito came back, they did start to see the roof coming in. And what had happened was, what we didn't know, was the way the Victorians built those walls, well, they had these cross beams in between, hidden behind the wall. Yes, it was empty at the bottom. Yes, it was empty at the top. But these cross beams, pillar to pillar, were the main supports. And it was a main supporting wall. And it was about to crash in. And we could have lost the whole roof of Chitwist House. Fortunately, Janamaro, I think it was, rushed to getting the acroprops in place and saved the roof before it all caved in. So we had a, uh, we had a clever approach. It wasn't like we were totally heedless. But it wasn't an accurate one. It, wasn't, it didn't accord with reality. So a wise approach to life is one that accords with reality. This is the practice that has uh, been going on here over the, the last week, is, is to hold back, you know, sitting silently. We want to talk. No, no, let's inhibit the talking and sit silently. You know, stop moving. Want to move. No, no, let's inhibit the tendency to move. This inhibiting the compulsive tendencies. Why? So that the pressure builds up. When the pressure builds up, then there's a chance for something new to happen. If we can't hold the tension, then nothing new ever happens. Again, perhaps one of the side effects of this instant gratification of our greed for information about reality, about the world we live in, this compulsive activity of gratifying our, our desires to get information is that we are not willing to tolerate the tension of not knowing. We're not, tolerate, we're not willing to tolerate the build-up of pressure. And if we can't tolerate the build-up of pressure, then... No transformation can take place. Transformation only takes place when there's a build-up of pressure, a build-up of It takes energy for transformation to take place. And our habits of attachment take a lot of energy. But if we're, into, if we're fooled by the apparent reality, that is that gratification of our desires is going to make us happy, that's what it looks like. If we've not stopped to look into that and we're fooled by that, nothing changes. So... This effort that's been uh, made over the last week, even though it's not an easy effort, is a very productive effort. And I'm sure a lot of people, well, I, I've heard a lot of people receive very real benefit over this last week. Not just the benefit of getting relaxed and happy, but the benefit of coming to some new uh, 
understanding so we're not fooled anymore. So we can easily and constantly, over and over again, get fooled by the way things appear to be. And Winning and losing is only uh, one example that we can get fooled by. As I was saying, we get fooled by the sense of the the build-up of, of tension or the build-up of, of pressure, and we don't like it. And sometimes in the community here, I've been here for now going on 24 years, and sometimes it's been suggested to me as abbot of the community, what we should do is employ some of these psychotherapeutic techniques and engage in group process. We should sit in a circle and share our feelings about each other. And it's not that I'm not familiar with the benefits that might come from that, but I'm not convinced that that conduces with the culture of contemplative life. One of the primary aspects of the contemplative life is this build-up of pressure. We need to be willing to develop the skills, the whole body-mind sensitivity, awareness, patience, to let the pressure build up. And so maybe we have some feeling about somebody in the community that's irritating us. For sure we do, constantly. We all irritate each other. But instead of following the apparent reality, which is, I've just got to tell you about, I need to tell you about this. And say, well, how about we just restrain that and let that energy build up? Feel the energy building up. See if we can develop the strength of containment, of desire, and instead of just following it, see if our relationship to desire can't be transformed. Because surely it's our relationship to desire that we're working on. It's not desire itself. I mean, desire is just so. Desire is like fire. It's part of nature, part of our life. We're not talking about putting the fires out, but we're talking about not getting burnt. So an important part of our spiritual life and our, our quest for liberation is the willingness to allow the tension to build up not to automatically follow the apparent reality, which is you've got to release this pressure and you'll feel good. It can look like that, it can feel like that, it absolutely does. But the transformation of carbon dust into diamonds doesn't happen without a lot of pressure. It takes a lot of pressure and a lot of heat and a, a really strong container. You have a really strong ability to hold that pressure and that heat mm-hmm. and then it's just in the nature of reality that with sufficient heat sufficient pressure and sufficient containment that carbon dust will transform into diamonds it's the same element still carbon but it's now something really useful you know, a pile of carbon dust is not much use but diamonds can be very useful so in daily life we have lots of examples of this and it can be a useful part of our practice and our contemplation, not going on retreats, yes, the intensity that 
we experience when we're on retreat and, and, and maybe you reach a point where you find a great deal of contentment and happiness on retreat and, and maybe you think, well, what I need is more retreats. This also can fool us sometimes. When we have that sense of well-being and, and uh, strength and clarity, you think, what I need is more of this. And so then there's a risk that uh, this is where retreat chunkies come from. You know, maybe you've met some of these people that just go from one retreat to another and then they have to go off and work and make some money and go back on retreat again. Or... So that also can be getting fooled by the way things appear to be. In fact, in actuality, in reality, maybe we can learn more from leaving retreats and coming into active daily life. So for those of you that have been on retreat, don't think, well, the retreat's ended now, the real bit's finished, I've got to put up with life again, you know, talking and relationships and... God, what a drag. Yeah. If only I could be back on retreat again and be peaceful. <laughs> well, remember the verse in the beginning, verse 201, uh, the peaceful ones, the Buddha said, dwell happily seeing beyond defeat and victory. Or well, actually a more literal translation of that line is having renounced defeat and victory. Yeah. Because they realize the understanding that being lost in defeat and victory is not the only way to live. We don't have to live on that level. That With wisdom, there's the possibility of seeing beyond the changing nature of the world. And wisdom then informs our decisions, not our preference for winning or losing. So don't be fooled into thinking that the real practice is being on retreat just because it feels nice, if it does feel nice. Don't be fooled into thinking that just because your meditation looks like total rubbish, that it is rubbish. It may not be rubbish. That's the way it appears. Apparent reality can be so full. And it really does look like that. I I often think that, like, uh, I have these nice boxes of Japanese incense. Every time I open it, it looks like it's so full. How could that ever run out? Like it's never going to run out, that box of incense, because it's just there's so many of them. I don't know if you ever had this experience. That could never run out. But it will run out. You know, it's like the mind gets fooled. Or if, you've, you know, if you refill your tea caddy with tea leaves and it's nice and full and you know, you're just taking a little pinch, you have the feeling it's never going to run out. But on another level, because you're not stupid, <laughs> because we understand, we know it'll run out. And so that's something we can study that. Just because it appears like it actually appears like that. It really does appear like the tea caddy's never going to run out. Yeah. It's on a lovely summer's day in Northumberland. It appears like it's always going to be this way, but it's not. Yeah. When desire arises yeah. and we're struggling, it appears like we should be following it. Yeah. I'm having a conversation early today with somebody talking about their retreat experience and I'm sure this happens uh, often to people that you, know, you do what the teacher encourages you do and you know, watching the breath or engaging the exercises to collect our attention into the present moment and there's a, a sense of stillness and it's like this and then the thought is, well, what next? 
so what? You know, what's the point of this? You know? We've got to get interested in that. Now, if we're not interested in that, if we're fooled by the way that that experience appears, we follow the desire and we're looking for what's next, what's next, what's... There's something lacking. And what next, what more, is representing us being identified with the movement of mind we call desire. We're caught up in desire and we believe that we need something. I will be happy when I get this next whatever next is, but there's never an end so long as we're caught up in it. So instead of following the way it appears to be, instead of following that, that apparent aspect of desire, it's there, that apparent aspect of desire is there. Yeah. A rainbow really does look like it's a thing, but we know it's not. It's an optical illusion. A mirage in the desert really does look like water, but because of understanding, we know it's not water. So we don't relate to it in a crazy way. What we need to get to is the understanding that knows that desire really does look like we should grasp it, identify as it, and follow it. And because we don't have that understanding, we follow it. We might have studied the Four Noble Truths, we might know about, we might have all this information about desire, but we don't know desire, we don't understand desire. Unless we have such an experience, we there's sufficient togetherness and presence and interest. And then when this perception rises, so what? What next? What more? We don't believe in that. We don't follow that. We inhibit. And this is the strength of renunciation. This is the benefit of restraint. You know, people misunderstand renunciation and restraint and, and think that we're going on about some sort of moralistic attitude towards life. Restraint and renunciation, the point of all those exercises is so that we can inhibit this compulsive tendency of always following the way things appear to be. So long as we always follow the apparent reality, nothing ever changes. Mm. But if we inhibit the tendency to follow the argument, the story put out by apparent reality... We inhibit that tendency, we stop and just look at it and feel it and get interested in it. Say, what is the reality of this? And say, well, I want. The reality of this what next is wanting. So, what's wrong with that? There's nothing wrong with it if we don't believe it's who and what we are. If we don't follow it, it's just so. There's a shift and then there's a beginning of some understanding, which actually then transforms our relationship to desire, which makes a difference. So information about reality, information about desire, doesn't transform. But such an experience born of inquiry can transform. So similarly with our experience of winning and losing, whether it's Northumberland young farmers or the ashes... Uh, Australia will win sooner or later and the ashes will go back again. So what? It's okay. It's not all there is to life. So thank you very much this evening for your attention.